Shall we not meet again? whispered she, bending her face down close to his. Shall we not spend our immortal life together? Surely, surely we have ransomed one another with all this woe. Thou lookest far into eternity with those bright dying eyes. Then tell me what thou seest. Hush, Hester, hush, he said with tremulous solemnity. The law we broke, the sin here so awfully revealed. Let these alone be in thy thoughts. I fear, I fear it may be that when we forgot our God, when we violated our reverence for each other's soul, it was thenceforth vain to hope that we could meet hereafter in an everlasting and pure reunion. God knows, and he is merciful. He hath proved his mercy, most of all, in my afflictions, by giving me this burning torture to bear upon my breast, by sending yonder dark and terrible old man to keep the torture always at red heat, by bringing me hither to die this death of triumphant ignominy before the people. Had either of these agonies been wanting, I had been lost forever. Praised be his name. His will be done. Farewell. That final word came forth with the minister's expiring breath. Welcome to Redeeming Greets, a podcast where we interpret classic novels in light of the gospel. I'm Taylor. And I'm Dylan. And today we're going to be discussing The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, the mm. maybe Christian, anti-Christian classic so should be should be exciting. <laughs> but yes, first, yeah. Dylan, what are you drinking tonight? So I have a coffee from New Harvest Coffee Roasters. This is a single origin. It's called Zongolica. It's from Mexico, actually. Um, Veracruz, Mexico. And uh, so the tasting notes on this are tropical fruits, floral, and brown sugar, which I think it was actually close to accurate. I taste some of those tropical fruits in it. Um, it actually reminds me of, um, Taylor and I used to really enjoy this um, one coffee shop. It's the one that kind of introduced us to specialty coffee. And it actually reminds me of the Mexico that they had at Ben's. That was classic. That was a, mm-hmm. just a good, solid, single origin. Yeah. And Mexico is an unusual, I don't drink many coffees from Mexico usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a another new coffee shop. I think this is the second time in a row, which is wow, branching out two two records <laughs> for me. It's still from Ethiopia, so I think that's the next branch out. Though is okay. is going to a different country, but I just think Ethiopia makes the best coffee. I'm just I'm just biased, but um, this one is from Acoustic Java, uh, which mm. is a coffee shop in Worcester, which is mm. sort of closest to to where I work. Uh, it's about 10 minutes from where I work in Auburn. I work in kind of multiple places. And it is a Yurgachev mm. Shalashe. That's my best guess. I have no <laughs> idea how to pronounce it. But it's a light roast, and it is described as lots of berry flavor mm. with chocolate and raspberry, juicy sweet and tart with a heavy mouthfeel. That's a ton of descriptors. I agree. And I think some of them are opposite descriptors, if I'm honest. Okay. But... I definitely get like a Yurgachev should be. It is. I think there's tartness. Uh, there's a berry flavor for sure. Although I was disappointed, if I'm honest, because I bought this. And at Acoustic Java, if you buy a bag of coffee, you get a free coffee. Yeah, you're there, okay. Which is awesome. It's a great which model. Which is a great... It's an incentive. Everyone should do that. Yeah. 
a fantastic, and here's why it's a good business model, because they had a Columbia, a light roast Columbia, on tap, and mm. just ready, and I was sort of in a rush, because I was on my lunch break, and they, <laughs> they, so I was like, yeah, I'll take the Columbia from on tap, uh, and I had, I t- took a sip, and it was amazing, <laughs> and I was like, okay, like, like now better this- than your... <laughs> maybe bag. and I, who knows if that's the brewing or what but it was it was really good it was just fantastic mm-hmm. it was like fruity i almost smelled like banana immediately when i smelled it but it didn't taste huh. completely like banana i know that's not a good i don't think banana is a good flavor profile in general but it was like fruity right off from the smell <laughs> in the cup while it was still hot and that's how you know that it's a really good because mm. flavor when something's hot you can't really taste flavor at all and it was really good and i was like okay now i have to come back by the columbia for next time wow. so wow you'll there's more to come on acoustic java <laughs> for for ratings but okay. i will tell you it's night and day compared to the coffee i had last month good because i mean good. you didn't like that did you no i did not no. and i won't buy coffee from them ever again so this Bummer. is this is a new i don't know this is a new step yeah maybe this is a new coffee shop i can actually buy buy stuff yeah cool you know what's sad though what you were saying about like that model where if you buy a bag of beans they'll give you a free cup is that then sometimes like i've been to coffee shops and it's like i go there kind of like and i'm like i intend to buy a bag and i'm like ooh, i like hope they ask me if i want a coffee and then they don't (laughs) and it's like oh and then i like order one to see if and then i have to pay for it and it's like ugh. (laughs) yeah you can't can't set an expectation right right disappointed it is um also um, we need to discuss this. I mentioned I texted you, Taylor, like when I had it. But recently, I was traveling to Florida and went to, on a recommendation of um, someone that I met down there, um, uh, I went to this coffee shop called Narrative Coffee, and I had a seven dollar geisha pour over. Seven seven dollars. Yeah, we need to talk about this. So I guess I was. I've heard of geisha before, like as as far as like a type of bean or whatever, you know. And I didn't, I don't know what it is, but I've like seen online that like people make a big deal about it in the specialty coffee world, and it's actually like a more expensive type of coffee. So I was like, I guess I'll do it, but I didn't realize how expensive it was. Um, and I guess the guy he and he did like a you know really nice pour over for me there with it. And he was describing that I guess it's like um, they leave I think the fruit on the bean. And then they like anaerobically remove oxygen and then let it ferment on its own with the berry like husk on it for a couple days, so that like that fruit flavor seeps even more into those beans in like a fermentation type process. Um, and so it, the idea is that it makes it super fruity and bright, but also like zesty and like zingy kind of flavors. And um, that's exactly what it tasted like. It was it was very like. I'd say like sour, not as like a bad cup of coffee, but sour as in like the fruity flavor of like a lime or a lemon. Um, tart maybe is is a better descriptor, but it was really fascinating. Um, but I found that it was one of those kind of, it was a coffee that's like just too much to actually drink all of. Like it got really, it, it was hard to actually drink much of just because the taste was just so unique. Yeah, I've had one geisha before, and mm. while it was good, I don't know that it was worth the insane amount I paid for it. Mm. It was just not worth that much extra money, you know? Yeah. Um, and geisha tends to be, it, I think it comes from Ethiopia also. Okay. Um, geisha, I think, is an Ethiopian varietal. Okay. 
so Maybe it tends yeah to, i guess you know more about this than i do it was my first experience I, I think it tends to taste very similar to other ethiopian type that mm. uh, fruity is my point like mm. it has a bright fruity profile mm-hmm. and there's a lot of complexity on that but to me it's not you know like you know, three times better than mm. kind of your standard mm. Ethiopia. Like to me, they're more or less identical. Yeah. So I, and like seven dollars, it's just a lot to to you know. Every time you go out to get a <laughs> coffee casually, that's just not what you want to pay. No, no, no. And I had. <laughs> but a f- I'm glad you. I'm glad you had that experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it was like worth doing to like say that I've done it, but I didn't. And exactly. the thing is, like, I ordered it and then he put it in, and it was like seven dollars, and I was like, oh. <laughs> can't go back yeah. now <laughs> yeah too late you're committed yeah yeah so let's move into our book discussion what did you think about um the scarlet letter taylor i have mixed feelings about this book the book itself is good i'll say that it's enjoyable to read 100 mm-hmm. uh it has a twist in it. Everyone loves a good twist. There's drama. Um, it's just, it's set in New England, which has a spe- special, you know, kind of place for us. We picked it during the Thanksgiving season just because we associate that with, like, pilgrims, which are not the same thing <laughs> at all. But it felt very appropriate for the season for it whatever did. reason. It felt like historical New England, which I I love. Um, it's a good fall New England time, book. definitely yeah that's that's the right way to describe it it's very like bordering on salem witch trials kind of stuff Mm -hmm. um without quite being that although there is sort of a wish in this book (laughs) i don't i don't know what to make of it's like satire (laughs) yeah i don't yeah it's like making fun of the witch trials i think but um yeah overall enjoyable there's a lot of really good philosophical questions about this book that i'm sure we'll get into and i think that's where i'm torn um, mm-hmm. uh, yep. n- not that it's a negative about the book itself, but that I don't know what to think about it. Mm. Maybe is where I'm torn, I, or to think of Hawthorne or what he was really trying to communicate. And I struggle over maybe how we interpret this book as a culture, and then also as Christians, and if those are you know compatible or non-compatible. But I'm sure we'll get into that more mm. a little mm-hmm. later on. But Dylan, what was your impression? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a I think it's a fantastic novel. Um, typically, like I think. I know for me, and I think many others too, like even I think my parents <laughs> told me when I was reading it in high school that they had to read it when they were in high school. I think it's a, one of those books that is commonly put into the high school curriculum. And I think it's often taught alongside Arthur Miller's The Crucible um, as kind of a like slam poetry against early American um, like Puritans, um, which I think is, I think it's not... I don't think it rightly represents the historical Puritans as someone like myself who I've like read Puritan authors, you know, um, who like the true Puritan theologians and they, they just are not the same picture. So I think that a book like this one was in part written as a response to that hypocrisy and legalism that maybe did occur in the witch trials, you know, that is just truly not Christian, but, um, yeah, so part of me was interested in actually reading this book because I do like a lot of Puritan authors who are, you know, who are theologians. I think that they're I align with their theology, really. And so it was, it's interesting then that 
um, our culture kind of has this larger understanding of Puritans as being hypocritical, legalistic, and um, just cruel, you know. Um, and I think a, there's a lot of readings of this book and some, you know, misrepresentations of it and see it as, um, you know, it's like primarily a book about the oppression of women versus the patriarchy um, or like the rebellious heretics being just oppressed by the Christians. But I think there's more complexity to it than that, um, which, yeah, we'll get into. But um, just to start, though, maybe briefly in like a minute or two, we can kind of breeze through the plot um, back and forth. Do you want to give it a shot? Yeah, go for it. Let's 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 try it. <laughs> the novel starts. Um, there's a little intro piece, actually, <laughs> which is I, I want to say it's kind of Nathaniel Hawthorne's own um, semi-autobiographical intro to the book. Um, kind of this story about a guy who is working in a custom house and he finds this old, um, what is it? Like, no, no, he just finds the old letter, I think, right? In, in this, I think it's yeah. fictional intro, but it sets up the, this frame narrative for the story. So like, I think it's in present day when the book was written, like probably mid 1800s. This guy finds like a scarlet letter of fabric in an old, like ancient custom house, which was like a, I think where state workers worked. And um, then he discovers, you know, the kind of legacy and the lore behind what the scarlet letter was. And that is what most of the book is about. Um, namely, a, a woman who was um, found to be an adulterer in early New England and was imprisoned for this for I think three months or so um, once the child was born and then as her punishment instead of um, I don't know something more severe maybe like the death penalty instead for punishment from this Puritan community um, she was to have this scarlet letter A on her chest that she would wear for the rest of her life yeah and she uh, goes on to raise her her daughter in this context of uh, Puritanism that was very oppressive and judgmental of her her pastor and could never seem to move past that sinfulness and really the whole community paints her in a certain light just as an adulterer, mm. uh, basically. And then as we get to the end of the novel, which we'll discuss more, uh, we're shocked to find that the adulterer that shared in this affair was not who you would expect um, and uh, characters sort of materialized as sort of evil in the background that you didn't know were there and um, just overall a surprising book towards the end. But we can talk more about the plot mm -hmm. as we go. Yeah. Um, what did you see as some of the major themes of this book? Um, guilt, for sure. Uh, the Puritanism as a sort of religious suppression, for mm. sure, that was absolutely devoid of any grace. Yeah. Uh, was definitely a theme throughout yeah. the book. And it was sort of maddening as, mm -hmm. you know, as believers, as we read this, because you so badly want just to be like, it's literally the opposite of everything we're about, which is, yes, that was a mistake and that there's grace for you mm. in those situations. And just for the these, adultery. You mean yeah right exactly like there's there's grace for people who have adultery like that that's mm -hmm. 
a reality of the Christian faith. And for them to paint this woman, even to the point of, like, she wears this letter Mm. that represents who she is, and that's her new identity. And throughout the book, to have them even question whether or not she can keep her child because she was an adulterer is just absolutely insane. No separation from her sin. Literally none. Um, even even in the face of what I would clearly s- see as a contrite, genuine mm-hmm. repentance from her throughout the whole book, through from Hester, uh, she represents, I think, in some ways, a repentance in that she knew what she did, and it wasn't like she was proud of it um, until you know maybe some changes happened towards the end. But uh, overall, uh, that was a for sure a burden on her throughout and a narrative theme throughout the whole book. Mm-hmm. That's that pharisaical hypocrisy as you describe it there. Mm-hmm. Another theme that it's not really a theme that the book, I don't, I don't know if it is even promoting it or not, but like this book falls into the wave of like a, like literature movement of American literature of the romantics, which was settled, I think close to the transcendentalists, um, those like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry Thoreau, who were actually friends <laughs> with Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, but I, I don't think that Nathaniel was particularly a transcendentalist and that like he would elevate like nature and the natural world so high, but he did, I think, I think he's promoting this type of romantic idea of, which basically is like elevating, um, like feelings, freedom from restraints, um, individual autonomy, um, as opposed and as like a backlash to like legalistic or rigid, rigid, just authoritarianism and rationalism in the larger culture at that time with like the enlightenment, um, which, and there's some, you know, there's some aspects of that that are good, maybe and helpful, but others that we might disagree with. But, um, yeah, I, I think that, uh, as far as, some actually background information from Hawthorne too. He actually, he himself in real life was related to one of the judges who was involved in the Salem witch trials. And he um, was very ashamed of that. And he actually changed his own last name to try to distance himself from this heritage. Um, And so it's possible that's maybe like he had some intrigue with these Puritans and saw them in, in this specific way and wrote about it. But I do think that, um, as far as like a theme goes, apart from like that pharisaical hypocrisy um, of the Puritans in this book, there's also um, this tension between the romantic worldview and like a truly, I think, biblical worldview with like like a true, like not the Puritans in this book, not Hawthorne's Puritans, but like real biblical repentance. Yeah, I think he intentionally picks two things that are sort of exact opposites which makes for a good storyline maybe to have someone caught right in between absolute romanticism that's extremely dramatic and full of emotion and feeling and like love in this case maybe right and completely pinned to the opposite extreme Hmm. is a very specific historical point um so those are foils against each other for sure in this book, but I think they're also over-exaggerated, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. Like, he picks the the most intense versions of both of those things and writes the book in, in that space in between. And, you know, I think the reality of it, if you were trying to write a realistic 
version of this story, it wouldn't look quite that black and white. Um, but he's definitely in the vein of those those transcendentalists who were romantics and and I think even some of that nature you mentioned the the elevation of nature there is a scene that takes place in mm-hmm. the forest yeah you're right that exactly. sort of is representative and I don't I agree with you it's not it's not a major theme throughout but that is a super important moment and even the way that Hawthorne plays with light and dark in that moment mm-hmm. he has this thing with the sunshine um mm-hmm. like shining brighter once she uh loses her scarlet letter she takes it off Mm -hmm. for a moment and it's like she's freed and she becomes this different woman and literally the scene grows brighter at that moment in the forest i think is representative of some of that transcendentalism maybe woven in to the story but i i'm with you in that i don't think it's the primary the primary point of view Mm -hmm. yeah and there's a couple other characters probably worth mentioning just for listeners so pearl is the daughter of hester um I think she grows up to be the age, like, seven or so by the end of the novel. Um, and she's always kind of described as, like, a wild child, like, almost like the bane of Hester's existence. Like, she's Hester grows to be very, you know, compassionate and, like, a, um, for lack of a better term, like, saintly type person. And that's one way, I think, that she kind of, you know, bypasses, like, the sin and, and um, instead, like, her A, people in the community eventually come to see it as able instead like representing that word because she's always like giving of herself to the community but yeah anyway but pearl is pearl is her daughter but is always kind of giving her like a hard time she's described like in i think it's that romantic like literature flair of of always being described as like an imp (laughs) or like an elf girl (laughs) which is kind of playing on like some of that possible like witchcraft dark language but not really meaning it more like more just representing that she's in some way symbolized with this or a symbol of like the sin that Hester can't get past um there's also Chillingworth who um he is an interesting character he's actually introduced early on when Hester is first publicly put on the scaffold for all of the public to see he walks up and he's actually revealed to be Hester's husband who was coming over to the New World from England. Um, and when he comes and meets his wife, he sees her up on the pillory. Um, and so instead uh, of exposing himself, he actually wants to like find out, as like a super sleuth, <laughs> he wants to find the person who was the adulterer and commits himself to that end. And he creates a new identity. Um, Hester knows who he is but no one else does um and so he goes by the name chillingworth and he just happens to move in with and kind of befriend in some sense dimsdale um who is the the minister who um eventually he is the one who is revealed to be the adulterer um that's the plot twist right there um taylor when did you first realize like, where did that twist occur in the book for you? Because I think it's what's interesting is that there's not a specific point where it's revealed. I think it's slowly, I think the reader slowly gathers that information. When was it for you? Yeah, Dimsdale is an interesting character because he's so revealed by the community. And at the same time, this kind of contrasting part is that he's a revered pastor and preacher and even full of grace. 
at the beginning, which is a, a contrast to his other Puritan um, hmm. friends who are yeah, very... Yeah, he sticks out from them. You're right. Definitely. He's unique, and he feels more... You're drawn to him, I think, immediately, or at least I was in terms of a uh, uh, the Christian leader who did exemplify grace. But the contrast to that is he's, he's always depicted as sickly, as if his life is slowly declining. It even says that, actually. It's that people think he's going to die sooner than, than he should, even though he's a young man. And by any accounts, very successful in terms of being well-regarded in the community. Um, so when you finally find out that he's the adulterer, it's, it is shocking. But you're right. It, it sort of is bit by bit and piece by piece. As part of his sickliness, he keeps touching his own mm-hmm. chest. And that was something that it was very specific throughout the book that he, you know, he was always sickly touching his chest. Um, and that's where uh, Hester has her scarlet mm-hmm. letter. So that parallel slowly over time, you have to be suspicious of mm-hmm. that a little bit until finally, I think it's like two thirds of the way through, you find out, you know, they have a secret meeting where they're discussing um, what in nature. That's the nature scene, correct? Correct. Yeah. So in nature, it's kind of this like, uh, this bubble where they're safe from the outside community. Mm-hmm. And it's almost, um, I don't want to say Edenic, but like it's, yeah. it's isolated and apart from the community and they can be together without the shame and the stigma mm-hmm. that they've experienced. This shame that's so heavy on Dimsdale that it's literally driving him to his death, which eventually happens in the last scene of the book. Uh, he literally just dies Um out of some, probably it's probably from the weight of social sigma and of shame himself and all sorts of things, but he he like gives up his life at the end um, after revealing who he was before they could punish him for for his his crimes. But for me, it was those moments that made me realize that it was him. Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly, a lot of things make sense when you realize his deterioration and why he defends Hester. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, it's because he's the father. He was the one who shared in the adultery with, with her. Mm-hmm. So I think... Oh, oh go I for just it. wanted to share another little twist that I... <laughs> it actually hit... Like, I kind of... Like, I knew that. I remembered, because I've read this in the past, I remembered that, like, that was the one of the big plot twists is that Dimsdale, the minister, is the adulterer. He's really, you know, the one. Um, but... There was another twist that I had forgotten that like hit me when I was reading it. Just a great plot twist moment when, um, well, and, and even for the readers, I guess to get part of the plot in that forest scene is when um, Hester and uh, and Dimso kind of come up with this like plot, or Hester influences him and says, "Hey, like we should just leave." and just escape together. You can finally be open with me and we can love each other. You can finally be the father to Pearl that you never have been. And um, he's like partly convinced. And uh, um, I think they plan to like board a ship and then go. The plot twist that got me was when then, I think later there's like a some type of celebration or something like that in, in public downtown and um there's all these sailors who are there and they're and the whole chapter i think is about pearl like interacting with different people in the community and then at the end she interacts with uh like some of the sailors and they talk about oh there's that other um the other person who's going to be joining you huh and it's actually chillingworth who like discovered their plot and he 
like locked himself in to go with them <laughs> and basically to continue tormenting Dimsdale. Um, that was another plot twist that I had forgotten about. It actually like shocked me when I read it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's a surprising moment at the end, particularly because Chillingworth starts off as sort of an innocent character. It's almost the almost, opposite. almost merciful because he doesn't expose when he could expose. Yeah, this is an interesting. Tell me about your impression of Chillingworth as a villain mm-hmm. in this book, and I think in particularly in contrast to Dimsdale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that he. I think he's like full on. He is the villain. He is the bad guy, and um, we'll talk a, maybe even a little bit later about why he's later identified a little bit with like demonic influence in some way um just by descriptors um symbolically uh but from the beginning he's just this mysterious guy who he seems he's the he seems like the victim almost in some sense that hester like he finally comes to meet his wife and here she is having committed adultery has another child with another man and he's just rolling up to the scene um and instead of like exposing her or, or well actually well, now that I'm like voicing it out loud, it doesn't really make sense. But like he he wouldn't have anything to expose because he didn't know who the adulterer was really. But he dedicates himself to he like takes up the profession of like doctor and moves in with Dimsdale as like a friend because he's suspicious. And then as time goes on, he turn he like turns into a villain, I think. And he just prays. It's almost like he's like drawing his strength from the weakness and frailty of Dimsdale's physical you know, strength. And it comes from Dimsdale's just like, um, being wrecked by his sin. It's like eating him up inside pretty much. And, um, yeah, he, he's like almost like just feasting on the sorrows and agonies of Dimsdale. And so then they become foils as well. Definitely. I think it's fascinating that Dimsdale's painted in a good light at the beginning, maybe like Chillingworth, they're both sort of morally decent in both of their own spheres. And then despite Dimsdale being the adulterer of the book, he ends up being sort of the hero of the story and maybe even the main character. We can talk more about that maybe, but Chillingworth is continuously like downward spiral, um, more and more evil, even to the end when Dimsdale gives himself up in the end, he sacrifices his own life by admitting to the crowd who he is and at that Chillingworth says something along the lines of like oh you've been freed from me now because he was going to follow them on their journey away he was this dark cloud looming over them who sort of knew the real scenario and could hold that guilt over their heads and then in that final scene he's like oh they've they've escaped you've escaped me mm-hmm. right like you've been freed from me so that now you're out of my hands like the evil has lost its grip on him because he comes clean and 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 admits that which is a beautiful image i think of repent not i don't even know if it's repentance but at the clarity that admittance Mm. of guilt gives it's incredible yeah uh for a maybe a non-believing or (laughs) i don't whatever whatever hawthorne wanted to do with this book the redemption in that moment is incredible that evil has no hold on the the sinner in that moment because he admits his own guilt like that is as christian as it gets and to (laughs) borrow from catholic terminology like absolution yeah yes 
Yeah. Like it's it's off his chest, literally. Maybe that that whatever he has on his chest, which is a whole other thing. But mm-hmm. at that moment, he is free, mm-hmm. and that's that's the best part of the whole book. The sickly man finally reaches his end, but in freedom mm-hmm. instead of having to hide and full of shame. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to read this actually from the last chapter. It's from Chillingworth. Um, he says, "Hadst thou sought the whole earth over." There was no place so secret, no high place or lowly place where thou couldst have escaped me, save on this very scaffold. So, like, basically, the, it's insinuating that had this plan, this romantic plan that Hester roped Dimsdale into to go and escape and just be together forever, the guilt of Dimsdale's sin would always have a hold on him. You can't outrun your sin basically is, like, the idea there. And it's only, like, the only safe place, the only place that Chillingworth could not reach him and where he was the weakest is when Dimsdale confessed his sin publicly. And then I think later um, in that moment, it says that Roger Chillingworth, who was all along described as like a strong kind of like um, just a stronger, like featured older man. Then it says when that happens, it says that the life seemed to have departed out of him like so there's again that romantic like artistic kind of um like his strength the strong man is now being like emptied out totally as dimsdale himself the weak man is finally like i mean he's he's he dies but he dies triumphantly you know having confessed his sin so in that sense i think i think that the book begins to focus so much on Dimsdale and his plot arc um, that it almost forgets Hester for a lot of the book. And I truly think that he's probably the main character more than Hester. Yeah, agreed. And that's a surprising twist for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's undeniable. Yeah. There's actually a there's a Christian commentator of, of this book who I think he wrote a whole book um, interpreting this book through a like, Christian worldview. And he has this quote that I wanted to read. I found it online. This is from Randall Stewart. Um, it's from a book that he wrote called American Literature and Christian Doctrine. He says, Hester is not the protagonist, the chief actor. And the tragedy of the Scarlet Letter is not her tragedy, but Arthur's, who is Dimsdale. He's the persecuted one, the tempted one. His public confession is one of the noblest climaxes of tragic literature. The confession was decisive. Its function, the novel, is to resolve the action. It turned the scales in the great debate, though Hester, romantic heretic to the end, remained unconvinced, impenitent, and unredeemed. So that's one take. I don't know I don't know if you'd agree with Hester as being unredeemed at the end. Um, but regardless, yeah, I think there's something to say about Dimsdale being the main character all along. Well, it is interesting that Hester still thinks that the solution is for her to run. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's something that the, Dimsdale <laughs> understood that the freedom came not from running from what they had done and who who he was at that moment, but in admittance of of his guilt, mm-hmm. you know? And Hester, in that sense, had this grand vision of what their life could be in another place by boarding a boat and everything would be happily ever after if they could just leave not knowing at the time that her you know her husband was going to be following them as a dark cloud and that would have been 
if he did the same thing he had done in this setting, why wouldn't he do that somewhere else, uh, mm-hmm. wherever they went? So their lives wouldn't improve. They'd constantly be worried and full of shame, and, and Dimsdale at least realized, yeah, that that's not a solution to anything. Mm-hmm. But then in admitting, and in that sense, I see him sort of falling somewhere in between those two extremes. Like he, as a sinner himself and an and admittant one, he was full of far more grace than his Puritan counterparts. And at the mm. same time, he was not the fullness of that romantic vision of emotion and love somewhere else that would have ultimately been a lie. Mm. You know, he really fell in between. I think that's what makes him such a, a great, you know, sacrificial tragic figure mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end um and it i think it was poetic that he dies on his own um and it's almost like he he like chooses his death yeah in that moment and instead of facing the penalty of the puritanism right which at least was insinuated that he would die for mm. right like he would be or at least punished right minimally for for what he had done uh, he gives up his own life in that moment. Um, and the judgment of the Puritans couldn't touch him. Like, he was beyond their judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, the judgment of God, maybe, you might might say in that moment. Like, he submits himself to, you know, this burden he had, he had been wearing. Um, but certainly is the hero of the narrative. Yeah. Did you think there was any symbolism with the name pearl being given to the daughter it's just a what do you mean unique name sure seems, seems out of place in a puritanical society yeah i guess i hadn't given it much thought um it is definitely different from the other names in the book i'll give it that i don't know if there's anything about the name specifically though i i guess she pearl is kind of painted as we might have mentioned briefly before as She's, like, almost unreal sometimes. Yeah. Um, she, like a symbol. Maybe yes. more than an actual character in in the book. And a symbol of Ooh, that sin. That's uh, that's trippy to think about. That she's not an actual... Right, no. <laughs> Is this an allegory? Uh, no, I'm A beautiful mind. She's not there all along. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. Um, but even, like, at the end, we kind of get this little... Uh, like narration at the end about what happens to all of to everybody in the book and mm-hmm. Hester like leaves with Pearl and then she comes back and Pearl's not with her mm-hmm. like years later and Pearl becomes the heiress of Chillingworth's money which is like ironic yeah. as can be I don't yeah. understand all of that if I'm honest but she becomes extremely wealthy and like disappears mm-hmm. at the end and Hester comes back to the same to you know to the village and lives where she used to mm-hmm. which is a wild full circle thing but mm-hmm. i don't know what to make of her name specifically did you have something like particular in mind about mm-hmm. pearl i don't know like maybe she's like something of value yeah i don't know but yeah i mean i think that the outro or the conclusion of this book shows that her life after dimsdale's confession like takes a different turn and it's i think that like when they were in the forest even Pearl, mm. I think Dimsdale, like, when he's finally open with Pearl, like, like I'm your father. <laughs> he asks for her to kiss him, and she, like, doesn't. She's, like, you know, like you, kind of like you said, she's just, like, kind of this wild-natured 
kid who's like not super well behaved and is like refusing to kiss or no i think maybe it's like if she says like come into the light or mm-hmm. something like that you know something like symbolic like that and then uh, like, well, she, well she'll only kiss him if he will openly admit who he is to the town that's what it is okay like publicly she was like i will only kiss you if you will walk all three of us hand in hand back into the town i there think that's what she says right so mm-hmm. like in order for her to give her affection he has to admit who he is mm-hmm. yeah that's it and then when he does she finally does um kiss him and i i made a ton of highlights in chapter 23 i just want to read this one too it says pearl kissed his lips a spell was broken her tears fell upon her father's cheek. They were the pledge that she would grow up amid human joy and sorrow, nor forever to do battle with the world, but to be a woman in it. Towards her mother, too, Pearl's errand as a messenger of anguish was all fulfilled. Like, almost like in that moment, um, it says, like, a spell was broken, you know, and then she no longer is, as it says, like, destined to do battle with the world and just be ill-behaved but instead she can become a woman in it and like be successful like live and, and have a, a a good life now that she you know she like kind of knows who her father really is or like she doesn't always have this looming thing i guess maybe following her and i think yeah. that's later described in the conclusion um it's like she's set free <laughs> from this curse of sorts and so yeah, but coming back to her name, I don't really know. She does inherit all of the money from Chillingworth, which is which is interesting, but yeah. Maybe that doesn't I think I think she plays if we think Dimsdale's the sort of the main character, yeah. she might be more a foil to him than her own hmm. character. Hmm. In terms of she was one from the beginning that showed some level of affection to Dimsdale, which already in hindsight is suspicious, but at the time Maybe you didn't think much when you were reading beginning to end. Hmm. But then when you get to that point, it's like, it's interesting that she was the only one driving Dimsdale to do the heroic thing in the book. This child, not, not the Puritans, not the religious yeah. leaders, not Hester. Hmm. The child was the only one who was saying, you have to admit who you are for this to be like the good and right thing. Um, and she did that by withholding her affection from, mm. from him until that final moment when he does follow through with that. It's as if she was the one who pushed him mm. to do that, right? It's like she was the, the one who made that happen, mm. um, which is really fascinating. She's like a key player then in the, in the plot. Yeah. Um, but we don't really know much about her herself you know, other than how other people perceive her. As we move into our gospel reflection on this book, um, as if we haven't been talking about it all <laughs> along. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, just thinking about like practical ways as Christians that we can kind of relate to this book and see ourselves in it um, for better and for worse. Um, I, th- I mean, I think that there's times that we are kind of all these characters, <laughs> but namely like the, the puritanical society um, like even that desire to openly shame someone and then punish them publicly in a way that's cruel and unusual, I don't think is like, I think it's super far removed from our society today. Like we've moved on in some ways. Sure. 
Um, but at the same time, I think that we still, as, as just as humans, embody this kind of like unjust vengeance. You know, we want to pour out our judgment on on people who we don't like. Just to be frank, um, what Taylor? What kind of public scaffolds in our day? Maybe it's not the pillory that you have to put your head in in front of the whole public. Um, but do you think that we have any any similar forms of of that today that we see in our culture? Yeah, I mean, I think we still have a shame culture in our own way, maybe. And it's it's funny, there's like two extremes. In some ways, we've moved so far away from that, <laughs> where hmm. there's like no guardrails to society, hmm. you know? Um, and the very opposite to the puritanical um, way, and it's everything yeah. goes. And philosophically, whether that's sexual ethics or, you know, whatever, there's there's a one extreme on on one end. And then on the other, we still manage to have a shame culture mixed into that. Mm. Um, I don't, I think it's an art to, to, to do both of those things at the same time. Um, but to, you know, kind of absolutely destroy someone for, um, you know, <sighs> something they've done i don't there's there's Hmm. definite examples in our world and still in our churches you know for sure unfortunately Hmm. um i hope we've moved past that but i think there's not long ago i think this is increasingly less and less but not long ago it was like you know if you committed some sort of sexual sin in some church circles you were like like, oh, you've ruined, like, you were impure that time, you've ruined it for the rest of your life. Like, it's all over, you know? So, what sort of the, 100%. That's, like, the message that was, at least was communicated, you know, to some groups. And even I feel like I was maybe on the, the in a partial scenario like that in terms of a legalistic, more kind of culture growing up mm. in some ways, um, where it's like, you just have to, to carry that burden, you know, and to be fair, there are some like, just to balance it, like, I know where you're going, but there are definitely some practical implications of like, some people oh. might not be qualified to serve in the future due to some, oh, oh, th- oh, some yeah, things, yeah. but 100%. But I mean, like to associate yourself with shame for the rest of your life, mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, as an internalized Marked thing off. and, and let it, and let it destroy you. Like Dimsdale, I mean, Dimsdale is a very physical representation of that. It's not like our bodies are wasting away because mm. of that. But to just be like, this is not like, that was unwise. That was a poor decision. We don't think that was the right choice to make. We believe that was sin in the eyes of God. And that there is redemption for you in the gospel, mm. right? And that redemption is a transformation of who you are and it's an ongoing thing right so we we are saved and then day by day we fight (laughs) against those temptations and also are being renewed into the image of christ like there's a ongoing thing and i don't know that we've done a good job of both of those and when you read dimsdale i think everybody to some degree will identify with dimsdale as a character right to be Mm. like I have this the shame or something that I have to bear with me, um, and I think the solution is you know hiding it or something. Hmm. And it's like, yeah, no. The message of this whole book is that the freedom came when he was open and honest and admitted that 
like, this is, this is who I am and I, I messed it up, you know? And that like is a grace moment, I think really. Um, and a beautiful one at that. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, that's the true gospel. That's the gospel of God's grace. 100%. And even outside of the church, are we not obsessed with like canceling people? Oh, (laughs) definitely. Or dragging people on Twitter, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like, and obviously there's some point where you have to be like, yeah, this person is not fit to be in certain scenarios. Like you just mentioned, right? Like, like putting someone who has, who has erred in a certain way into scenarios where they can do that again, not a wise thing to do. Mm -hmm. And at the same time to pull something from, you know, we see things like what this person did when they were, 12 or whatever you know like and they're still painted by that persona is literally the definition of this scarlet letter Mm, Um, yeah and and i think it's one thing if if you can prove that that behavior has continued right and you're like okay like this is clearly a continuation of that thing versus where it's like they know that was a poor decision Mm. (laughs) and there's no evidence that 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 person continues on today but they are still labeled with that is just beyond um, any Christian idea. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's far removed from any, any gospel. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Hawthorne represents a true Christian worldview in the Scarlet Letter? <laughs> and we've been talking about it a little bit throughout this whole this whole podcast, but do you think as uh, Leland Reichen does, uh, and we've looked at some of his stuff and um, for our listeners, Leland Reichen argues that essentially that, uh, who is Leland Reichen? Phyllis in Dillon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know enough to give a biography of him. He's yeah. Christian, <laughs> Christian, Christian critical author, right? Like he, he does literary critical studies. Yeah, and yeah. theology at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I think he's a professor at Wheaton College, and he's, okay. he's written a lot of he's written a series of Crossway books of, that are um, guides to classic literature. But he's also written a lot about the English translation of the Bible too. Um, so, like for I don't know, some people might recognize like those little pamphlets that are like choosing a Bible translation. He wrote like one of those. So he knows a lot about not only just like classic literature, but also biblical literature and scholarship too. But his main, he started off in, I think in literary yeah, studies. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I and think that that's kind where of theological did. was, was mixed with that. Right. Yeah. He teaches, I think his main classes are in literature, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Just in a Christian context. But, um, Riken argues, uh, in a bunch of ways that, um, the Scarlet Letter is a Christian classic, which is fascinating based on a lot of the things we've talked about and about and Hawthorne himself. But Dylan, do you think that uh, the Scarlet Letter represents a Christian worldview, essentially? So I, I think typically the the predominant way that it's been taught and like people like Leland would say it's been misrepresented or mistaught as a classic is that. Like, yeah, that idea that this is a book that was written to oppose Christianity because of the Puritans and the book, <laughs> which I don't think, I think there's more to it than that. And I don't think like Hawthorne was a believer, 
but I think that in some sense, like he, he was probably more, I don't think he, that was his main aim was to drag Christianity or else he wouldn't give Dimsdale this beautiful repentance at the end. That's God focused. And so I, I can't speak for the author himself, but I think it has Christian themes in it. And I think if we're as believers willing to interpret it that way and receive it and redeem it in some sense, um, even if it wasn't intended as a Christian work of literature, we still can receive it that way. The same way that we would eat or drink unto the glory of God. Um, I think we can read unto the glory of God by reflecting on the truths that are shining through even this work of man-made creation. You know, I mean, if the heavens declare the glories of God and all creation does and uh, God speaks in some sense through the revelation of creation. I think that can extend to books like this as well. And clearly, as we've as we've t- been talking about, there's a lot of that here, especially at the end of the book and Dimsdale's repentance. Um, so I think in that sense, I would consider it. To, I don't know if I'd say it's necessarily Christian literature or Christian fiction, or or, or not Christian fiction, but just a Christian novel. Um, I might want to rephrase it a little bit, but I think it's a perfect example of a redemptive or a redeemable read hey look at that um i think when you're you're going down the the sort of the uh general revelation route Mm. and that and um i think general revelation can shine through insofar as it is truthful to human experience Mm. Um, so as it is faithful to display true human emotion and feeling that it shows us something of of god's you know artistry in human beings and how he made us uh to function so definitely with you there and um Riken has this great kind of framework for understanding christian classics and i think the scarlet letter certainly falls into it and he he describes the book in this way and it's not because we don't view it as christian literature and maybe i would hesitate to use that phrase but it's not necessarily Christian because it has Christian themes or it mentions religious authority or, um, you know, deals with issues like sin and, and other theological issues. But, uh, he gives five reasons why, uh, it represents a Christian classic in some way. And the first is artistry and then truthfulness to human experience. And then it interprets life and then it has a triumph of grace. And, and those I think one, two, three, four, yeah, five things to him uh, represent a Christian classic. And I think that's really true to what we're trying to do here as a podcast, right, is read these books that we're not trying to force them to fit into our theological, you know, (laughs) worldview. Like, it's just, we're not, like, seeing Christianity and everything. We're not trying to paint it like the author was trying to communicate something Christian. But we think that in its artistry, in its truthfulness to human experience, in the way it faithfully interprets human life, and in the way that we see God's grace or redemption in kind of the bits and pieces of these novels, um, in that sense, they are Christian classics, to us, (laughs) at least. Um, And all classics, I think, represent those things to some degree. And that's why they're classics, is because they speak to human experience better than all of the other hundreds of novels that didn't make it to classic status. 
Uh, and that's why we want to read them. Mm. Uh, it's because they, they tell us something as Christians about God ultimately and ourselves uh, that we don't always get even from, you know, quote unquote Christian authors. Mm-hmm. And so I think Reichen's interpretation of this, which I find just like super attractive is that the, really the way to properly frame the book maybe as, or as a Christian is that it's like the, the puritanical societies there in the background, but not truly a major player really like the, the narrative is about the foils of like this romantic, like Hester as this romantic worldview and then Dimsdale as this like, biblical Christian worldview finally like he struggles with a lot of um, like assurance issues and he's like crushed under the weight of his sin and only at the end does he really like finally peak that you know crest of having a Christian worldview but he does sit so victoriously that it's still I think legit to say that Um, and so like they've both sinned and Hester is trying to find redemption um, in some sense like by her works and her achievements and by like picking herself up in the community. And that's not like all a bad thing, but in the end, um, she and Dimsdale actually like, like in the first quote, I think that I even read in the beginning, like Dimsdale refuses to continue <laughs> like on with her worldview. And he actually deny, or, you know, um, he says, hush, Hester, hush. And then he talks about how, um, He's like, do you not understand the weight of our sin? And so he finally, so in contrast to Hester, he finds this redemption through his confession. So it's like two striving worldviews that are both like working side by side through this sin issue in the background of this legalistic puritanical society. But the real true victor is Dimsdale's Christian worldview. Even though that means that he dies in the process, it's still, as he says, better (laughs) than if they were to run off and live this romantic um, type of life because his sin would always still haunt him. And so I, th- I, I think that's like where, how Leland would interpret it. And I think I pretty much fall there too. I feel like he mentioned something. He has a course actually that's free, available for this book um, on the Gospel Coalition website, which is great. Great resource, I'm sure. I, I just skimmed it a little bit, but I think he might hold to... Um, to this viewpoint though that where he thinks Hawthorne was actually trying to promote that Christian worldview when it was like secretly kind of like promoting it even though if he wasn't even himself a Christian I don't I don't know if that's even what Hawthorne was trying to do but regardless I agree with that interpretation as a Christian I cling to that because why it's true (laughs) because of what I know about the gospel that's truth in this book that like I can cling to and we can apply it in ways that are appropriate. Right. Definitely. I'm with you on the Hawthorne thing. It's doubtful to me that he was trying to emphasize that. Um, But I do believe that he was trying to emphasize the characters more than the background. And I think in our cultural interpretations of the book outside of a Christian worldview, the emphasis is the other way around Mm. that it's the characters versus the Puritans Mm -hmm. as representations of something larger as of religious authority or, or whatever it may be. And while that's true to an extent, I don't think they're the major players. Mm -hmm. I think redemption in, in 
Dimsdale is really the the central point of mm. the book. Yeah, I have. A, there's another quote here just from Leland Reich, and um, it's just so good. I can't help but not talk about all of what he's contributed to his work with this book. But he says too many readings equate the Puritans and Hawthorne's story with Christianity and with the Puritans of history. The Scarlet Letter, when it attacks Puritan behavior, is not attacking Christianity because Puritan behavior in the story is not Christian. The attitudes and behaviors of the Puritan community are condemned by a truly Christian standard as contained in the Bible and the life of Christ. Um, the Christian ideal is one that forgives and restores the sinner, but the Puritan community represents a simple design in the Scarlet Letter that simplicity is a foil to the complexity that we find in regard to Hester and the romantic worldview that she represents. So like not like he doesn't think that we should major on the Puritans as being a super significant aspect of the book. Rather, let's look at Hester and Dimsdale. Right. There's also an aspect, I think I alluded to it earlier, but um, at the end of the book, Chillingworth is kind of um, exposed as the, like almost like a satanic accuser, right? Like this type of symbol of someone who's trying to just, like Satan, accuse um, Dimsdale of his sin. All along, that's what he's doing. But um, even when Dimsdale is like about to come up on the scaffold, um, uh, Chillingworth says, um, do not blacken your fame and perish in dishonor. I can yet save you. Would you bring infamy on your sacred profession? And then Dimsdale responds. He says, ha, tempter, I think you're too late. Your power is not what it was. With God's help, I shall escape you now. Um, and then later he says that um, he refers to Chillingworth's, uh, or that he's like defying Chillingworth's power and the fiends, like referring to Satan, <laughs> kind of like tying those two characters together. So um, another aspect maybe of the book that we didn't talk too much about a little bit, but is that Chillingworth becomes corrupted by his own desire, his own satanic desire to like, take this guy down yeah it's interesting because we don't know a lot about his original motivation maybe because like we said it sounds mm. like he does not care to be married to us yeah anymore. yeah he is mysterious you're right so we don't know much about his motivation but clearly he is the villain in that sense that he all along was this scheming uh, i don't know entity that was pulling dimsdale down but it's not obvious why exactly i mean is he angry about the adultery that would be logical but there's nothing that tells us that directly that he's like angry about it or that he's angry towards hester or dimsdale but we know that he is trying to hurt them Mm -hmm. so we can assume but it's it's not made clear by by hawthorne Mm, yeah but i think there's a beautiful image for christians who have confessed their sins that like yeah when we i mean just like even psalm 32 talks about how um like blessed is the man who like confesses his sins openly like when i withheld or when i when i covered my sin myself um, my bones wasted away Um, but then instead the psalmist asks for god to cover Mm -hmm. those sins and to provide that covering um and for the Christian who is wrecked by their guilt and sin and their eyes have been opened to that. Like it's like, as if there is this chilling worth, who's just always at your side, always pointing yeah. at your sin. Um, but true liberation from that comes when 
we confess. And, the, you know, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. And when we do confess yeah. our sins, that's when the the accuser, our, our Chillingworth, <laughs> shrivels and dies, you know, and there's no more condemnation for us. And that's the most liberating thing. Despite the society or despite, like, the, you know, legalistic Puritans who might say otherwise, like, no, that's not the case. And we can't just stifle our sins either um, and try to escape it or outrun it because it's going to follow us wherever we go. Any striving of our own to separate us from our own sin um, is going to fail. And we need an alien righteousness to cover our, our sins for us. And it's found through the atonement that Christ provided for us in his death and resurrection. Definitely. Well, I was just thinking i think that we've been doing this podcast for a year now over a year actually i we should have brought it up last month because okay. our first podcast was released at the end of october of last year Oof, wow so, <laughs> over a year that's crazy it. we missed the our own anniversary of uh, the podcast bummer that's fine yeah yeah but it's been a year insane to be fair, we have not read 12 books. I think that the first couple of months we were still on that kind of train of like dissecting Con- Joseph Conrad's work over a couple episodes. Yeah, but which is still still great, but you know, it we, is. we've moved on. We've we, we've yeah. evolved. It would be fun. Like I, that's a cool idea, but no one wants to hear that. It would be yeah. fun for our, us just you and me only. <laughs> Definitely. But it also is great that we're able to get through more books and just read check off more of those classics from our list that we wanted to read um but yeah man this has been a good a good past year i feel like uh the compounding effect of reading these books is gonna be fruitful for our our wisdom just interpreting it you know in a biblical way i feel it already uh for sure i think i think there's something about not just reading a book but the way that we have to read and prepare even to just talk Mm. about it, even in Mm. the very small way we prepare, we don't spend hours and hours laboring over, over it or anything, but I think we retain more and can appreciate some of the things more because we actually talk about it and process it. And, um, you know, we hope that, uh, you as a listener also are, are thinking about these themes, at least even if you're not reading along with us, um, but we hope you're inspired maybe eventually to read some of these novels. And if not these, then other classic works of literature and to do the same thing that we are to just say, you know, what bearing do these have on the gospel or rather what does the gospel have to say um, about these great works of literature? Do you want to reveal our next book? Yeah, sure. So we're entering into the Advent season, into the Christmas season, and we're keeping on theme like we have these past few months or we've tried to i guess and in december we're going to be reading a christmas carol uh, by charles dickens which is uh one of my favorite books of all time i feel like i say that about every book maybe i should just stop (laughs) saying that entirely but it is just a fantastic uh short story i think it or i don't know if it qualifies as a short story or novella if i'm honest but either way absolutely brilliant and it's a a christmas classic for good reason um and we can't wait to dive into some of those themes uh with you all at christmas time i still can't believe that it's gonna be like even thanksgiving soon time is just flying 
Yeah, the next time we do this podcast, it will be Christmas. Wow, crazy. Insane.